As usual, I have very little time and too many things to say, so why don't we just get started. Um, the, uh, the title for today's talk is called My Journey to Generosity, and I kind of laugh about that because it's not my title. Um, I uh, was asked about a month ago to speak here today on generosity, and there was a person on staff who emailed me a bunch of times saying, hey Mike, can I get a title from you? And I was procrastinating and I didn't really have a title, and so last week there was a slide up I saw at the service that said, Mike Gaglin, My Journey to Generosity. I said, well, I guess that's my title. <laughs> and uh, I thought it's a pretty good title because it's, it's abstract enough that I think you can back anything into it, and it's also concrete enough that um, I was like, well, the, the reality is we all have had some type of journey with something like generosity, right? And I was laughing a little bit because you don't have to be a Christian to have a journey with generosity, right? Like, um, thankfully, we have the holidays, and specifically Christmas, where we actually learn how to become a generous person. And, you know, you start off, there's this spectrum of people that exist in the world who, when, you know, the kids who rip open the presents, and then there's the people who are a little bit older who build the presents till 3 o'clock in the morning and get screamed at for not getting the batteries and, you know, all that type of stuff. We go through this journey just around Christmas where you start to learn how to go from a person who just receives things to a person who actually gives things. And um, I was kind of laughing because that process, which usually kind of happens around, like, what, 16, 17 to mid-20s or whatever, um, where you go from being the receiver to the giver, is kind of like it can be a messy process because you're trying to figure it out, right? I remember being, I don't know, 16 or 17, and it was like, my dad came to me and he was like, uh, you know, you probably should get a present for Aunt Marie this year. And my whole world changed. I was like, what? <laughs> what do you mean get a present for somebody else? And Aunt Marie's like our grandmother, basically. It's my dad's aunt. And so I remember I had to take like 30 bucks, which was probably my life savings at the time, and go to Olive Garden and get a gift card. And that was like the big thing. And I remember sitting there and being like, just like watching her open. And it was like, this is a totally new, incredible thing. Also, I'm the second oldest in my family, so I got to watch my younger sisters go through the process of becoming generous around Christmas. And I don't know like, if this is the experience for you guys. I think for some people in this room it might be. But there's an interesting thing that happens around this area because the church is here and the Brinton Lake Shopping Center is there. Our family is here on Christmas Eve. When you're in a pastor's family, you naturally will just be at a church on Christmas Eve. And um, usually if you're like a last-minute gift buyer then you're on Christmas Eve waking up looking for places to get a gift from. And so if you come down, and I've, this has happened with my sisters who are younger than me for sure as they were walking through their process of becoming givers, if you walk downstairs on Christmas morning and you see a bunch of Eddie Bauer gifts, then you know exactly what happened. You know that <laughs> they basically were leaving second service or something, and Eddie Bauer's the last store that stays open in the Brenton Lake Shopping Center, and so you wake up Christmas morning as a brother, you're basically getting, I don't know, I got a spork one year that was like some adventure kind of thing. I got like, I have like four Eddie Bauer like coats that I'll never wear. It's like Eddie Bauer, Eddie Bauer, Eddie Bauer. But this is the process, right, where we learn how to become um, generous people. We, we actually physically learn generosity. Um, but I think that, the, that that's the normal process that happens for anybody who um, is just a human being on this planet, that the, in maturity you learn to be generous. Um, but as a Christian, there's kind of something else um, that's overlaid on top of it. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I, um, I feel like I have the privilege of interacting with people on a daily basis who do not necessarily have as much as me. And so that's one of the things that happens when you live in New York City. Um, you can't ride the subway, the subway two or three times without 
um, having a person come and walk straight up to you and say, hey, listen, I'm a veteran, I have this medical condition, I have no money, I need something to eat. That's pretty much a daily occurrence um, in New York City. And I'll tell you what, I've been on this planet for 30 plus years and I have never figured out a way to relieve the tension of looking at that person and just understanding me here, you there, resources, no resources, how do we navigate this? Um, I also feel like I've had, I've, you know, I've been able to get around a decent amount in the world. I lived in Nairobi uh, for a short time, and I was two miles away from the Kabira slum, which is one of the biggest slums in the world. It has a million people. And I remember every morning you would actually see these people don't sit around in the slums. They're, they're casual laborers, they call them. They go out and they work labor jobs. And every morning you would just see thousands of people pouring out of the slums to make a couple bucks that day to figure out if they could um, afford enough food for their family at the end of the day. And I remember just, um, I, would, I, would, I would sit in a cafe and just see thousands of people walking down the slum. And there's no way that you could look at that and just say, man, what a strange world we live in that basically by the lottery of birth, I am here and they are there. There's nothing, there's no, there's no difference. It's not like I was any smarter. It wasn't that I like, was able to achieve a little bit more or I had more drive. If you stuck me in the Kabira slums at two years old, I'd be walking out of there trying to make $3 a day. But instead, I was born in America, and things are completely different. The lottery of birth. It would be ridiculous to stand up here and try and come up with a biblical framework of generosity being a good thing. And so I won't talk about that. Everybody knows that generosity is a good thing. <laughs> I don't need to walk us through scripture to prove that out. Um, but what I want to do, what I thought would be, would be a good idea in trying to like hang um, some key principles about generosity and my journey on generosity, I thought, it would be a, I thought that if we were going to get something out of today, this is what I would hope for. I just hope that um, as we go through these principles that you get a vision um, that maybe your imagination is stoked for um, how rich and full a life is as a generous person. That's basically what I, what I think um, I want to explore. My journey with generosity, if it could be like condensed down into like something more simple than an entire sermon, is just that I think life is just bigger and better when it's lived generously. It's really, really that simple. Um, and so I'm going to go through three, uh, three key principles, and they all are, um, I've kind of mapped them onto three people's stories in the Bible. And the very first one is the rich young ruler. And so if you are open um, to Luke 18, I'm going to read a little bit about this story. You know the premise of this, right? This is a very, very common story. The rich young ruler is rich, young, and ruler. He has everything going for him in life. Um, but he comes to Jesus and he says this, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then he says, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. And that's when Jesus says this, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. It says, um, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it, it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Um, the, story, the rich young ruler is a common story, right? We, we know that he's, he has, like, uh, if you want to break this down by assets, he has three things on his side. He's rich, he has money, he's young, he has time, and he's a ruler, he has power. In some way, those are the three things that we're all going to be given in life, right? We will all have those assets to deal with, 
whether to hold on to them ourselves or whether to live generously. I think that the only thing that I want to draw out with the time that we have is that A, it's very interesting that he comes with this burning question, right? He basically has everything in his life. Uh, he has everything that you would, you would look for in life, but what does he come to Jesus with? The burning question of what must I do to inherit eternal life? There is still something that is missing even when you're rich and you're young and you're a ruler, right? That's not the conventional way that we think because most of, the, most of the lives, at least the lives of secular people, and if we're honest, the lives of many of us are directed towards those three things, right? Everybody is obsessed with wealth. wealth. Everybody is obsessed with youth. And everybody is obsessed with influence. And he has all of these things. I remember hearing a guy talk one time, um, and he said, you know, uh, I heard a celebrity one time who said, it's, uh, you know, uh, who was being interviewed, and they said, uh, somebody asked them, what do you wish that you knew before you got started? And he said, I wish that somebody had told me that when I had made it to the top that there was nothing there. And the guy commented on and said, well, I wish I could at least give it a try and find out for myself. <laughs> and, um, and this process is like these things that we're yearning for. This guy has everything. And so note the, the important thing, that there is one thing that is still missing. And he goes to Jesus and he says, what do I need to do? Because I know something's missing. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus looks at him and he says, one thing that you lack, and it's not in the rule book. You've kept the rules, great, but one thing you lack. And I think that's an important question to turn around on ourselves today. What is one thing that you lack? If you were face-to-face -face with Jesus and if you were a rule keeper, what is one thing that you lack? What's the thing that he would pinpoint in your life? Because for some people it will be money, but for some people it'll be all kinds of things, right? And so if you want to kind of identify with the rich young ruler, it would be answering this question, one thing you lack, and then Jesus tells him, go, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. It's interesting. I love the way that the message translates verse 18. He's, it says, this was the last thing the official expected to hear. He was very rich and became terribly sad. And listen to this. He was holding on tight to a lot of things and was not about to let them go. What are you holding on tightly to? It's interesting because we kind of know, right, that the things that we're after, those things, uh, you know, wealth and influence and youth and all the things that we're chasing, we know that those things in general don't actually make us happy, and yet our mindless pursuit of them happens because culture makes us drift in that direction. And then one day you wake up and you say, what am I doing, right? The rich young ruler had a lot of things that he was not ready to let go of because his life had become so embedded in those things. And that's, that is the problem with these things, that if, you, that if you let yourself get there, they become such an embedded part of your life. You walk out the script and you're trapped by them. It's the tyranny of that. And so I think if the rich young ruler teaches us anything, it's that generosity releases us from the tyranny of the self. Did anybody ever feel the tyranny of the self? when actually your self-absorption has hit such a deep level that you don't really, that you almost feel like a prisoner of the life that you've created, right? Generosity is the thing that releases us from that. There's a David Foster Wallace quote that I think is so interesting. He wasn't even a believer, but he said this, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if that's where you tap real meaning in life, you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid and you will and you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. 
worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we know all this stuff already. It's been codified as myths and proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables. It's the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in your daily consciousness. I had, um, I had a, um, I, there was a, I think it was two, thanks, two Thanksgivings ago, I woke up in the morning and I had, I had had this idea. There's an organization I serve on the board for, most of you guys know Water is Basic. We support them as a church. Um, and I woke up on um, Thanksgiving morning and I had this idea. I was going to take a jerry can, which is what the girls in some of these tough countries use to fill up well water and bring it back to their house. And I had this jerry can in my house and I was going to fill this jerry can up and I was going to walk two miles because um, that's the average distance that these girls will walk to a well. I was going to walk two miles um, and film myself doing it, and then try and raise money for a well. And, um, and I remember the morning, like Thanksgiving morning, there was just a bunch of stuff that needed to happen. It was like, my dad needed to, me to get shrimp, I was still in New York, I somehow needed to get home. Like, it's just like, these things in life kind of started coming at me, and I had this thought where I was like, you know what, I can probably just do something like this later, I don't really need to make it like this morning that this happens. But there was something else that was like, no, this is the morning, just go out there and do it. And so I basically took this jerry can and filled it, it's like 40 pounds of water, and I walked through New York City, and you know, honestly, in New York, they don't even look twice, because everything's weird in New York City. So they were just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> but I'm walking through all of New York City with this jerry can, and my sister filmed the whole thing, I stitched together, made a video for it, pushed it out to like all of my friends, and then literally over the course of the night, raised $10,000 for, um, for a well in South Sudan. And um, I don't tell that story to toot my own horn. I barely even gave anything to it. My friends gave most of the money. Um, I actually tell that story because I had the scariest thought when I woke up the next day. I said, what would have happened if I just didn't do that? If I had just taken the things that I've been given, which was my conveniences, my comfy life, all that type of stuff, and I just slept in instead. And it's interesting because it's like we view generosity as like money so much of the time. And sure, there was a money aspect of that. But much more important than that, we all had the money, right? Everybody was given 25, 50 bucks. We all had the money to put together for that. What, what nobody really had exactly was the time to give to it because we had given it to other things. And so I look at like the, I look at that and I, I just kind of see like it's, there, there are some, if I, I always wonder like if I had looked back on my entire life, what are all of the moments where I missed out on the bigness and the richness of life because I had given myself to things already, because I had worshipped other things, because I had put my time, energy, and momentum into other things? What are all of the instances? If you look back on your own life, where are, the, where are all the tiny moments? All it was for me was waking up a little earlier on Thanksgiving morning. That's it. That was literally all it was. And it opened up this incredible thing that basically led me on an entire journey to where I am with that organization today. Um, those missed moments are incredibly scary. I wonder, um, it's funny, I wonder when you think about the rich young ruler, he was a person, right? Like it's like we kind of forget these things, but he was a person. What was he thinking on his deathbed, I wonder? Maybe it was 50 years later. It's easy to play Monday morning quarterback when you see this whole story unfold, but when Jesus said, no, give everything away and come follow me, that was a tough thing. I mean, honestly, I don't think that half the people in this room, maybe 90% of the people in this room would actually do that, right? But what did he think on his deathbed when it was all said and done? 
there's got to be, I can't believe anything except that he sat there and basically said, man, if I could, if I could take something back, I would love to go back to that specific situa situation and pull the trigger on this. Because you know that when it was all said and done, to have the wealth and the power and all, that didn't mean anything. And when you look at the story that's written in these pages, to have been the 13th disciple and to have walked this entire thing out would have been the most incredible rich life. And I feel like that's the thing that's available to us. Um, generosity releases us from the tyranny of the self and allows us to enter in to things that God truly has for us. Um, but if you flip over one page, it's kind of interesting. I've always like thought it was um, incredible that Luke 18 and 19 being right next to each other, these two stories are kind of like paralleled. This is the story of Zacchaeus, and we've talked about this before here. Um, but the thing I want to talk about with Zacchaeus is basically this. If you can condense it down to a sentence, generosity is the default posture of a grateful heart. Generosity is the default posture of a grateful heart. And I think that's what you learn through the life of Zacchaeus. In 19 verse 1, it says this, He entered, that's Jesus, he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran up ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up to him and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I must come stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Interesting. If you highlight one word in, in these two scriptures, um, highlight um, in the rich young ruler, highlight the word sad, and then in um, Luke 19, highlight joyfully. And when they saw it, this is the crowd, they all grumbled. He's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Um, if you read this, if you kind of meditate on this scripture, I think the thing that would eventually stick out to you is at the very end, Jesus says this saying, um, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. What's your theology for that? He, he also is a son of Abraham. It doesn't make a ton of sense, right? It's like, okay, well, salvation has come to this house because he's the son of Abraham. But when you unpack this, what you realize is this. Um, Zacchaeus' story is so interesting because you know that he's a tax collector, not only a tax collector, but the chief tax collector. So it's like the, the most equivalent thing that we have to it is like some like mob boss, basically, or something. Like these guys were not, these guys were bad dudes. And what they had done was they had basically um, kind of like defected from the Jewish race and from religion uh, for the sake of money. And so that's the guy that Zacchaeus is. He's the tax collector. And, um, and one of the things that happened in those days is if you were a tax collector, because of the decision that you had made, you actually couldn't worship in the temple anymore. And so there was actually, the choice with tax collector was money over spirituality. And that was the choice that Zacchaeus had made. There was no chance that Zacchaeus could actually walk into a temple and worship. That was an impossibility for him. So how funny must it have been? How interesting must it have been for Zacchaeus to be in a tree <laughs> and Jesus, God incarnate, is actually walking towards him. And if you wanted to put it in some like, you know, kind of like more of a picture, it's like the, you can't go to the temple and so literally the temple is coming to you. That's the walk that Jesus is making. And for a person who could actually never get access even to the outer courts, 
Literally, God himself looks up and says, I want to eat dinner with you today. That's what happens in the life of Zacchaeus. And so it kind of makes sense when he stands up, whatever, we don't know what happened when they actually had dinner together, but somewhere in the course of this, he stands up and he says, I'm going to give away half of all that I have to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone, I restore it fourfold. If you've defrauded anyone, you're the chief tax collector. You literally have defrauded everyone in existence in the city of Jericho. So what is he saying? He's going to give back four times the amount that he's taken to basically every single person, a.k.a. I'm going bankrupt for all of this. It's weird. He actually purposefully, joyfully makes the same decision that Jesus was asking the rich young ruler to make. But he doesn't even think about it. Why? Because Zacchaeus becomes aware that in a world where he could have never actually approached God anymore, God approached him. And from that heart of gratitude actually flows the response that we see. I think that if you, um, uh, there's, Dallas Willard did, a, did like a mini translation of John 3.16, where he said this, God's care, this is, this is John 3.16, God's care for humanity was so great that he sent his unique son among us so that those who count on him might not lead a futile and failing existence, but have the undying life of God himself. I have to think that what Zacchaeus was aware to is that his life was a futile and failing existence. And has anybody in this room ever been there? You just walked around, you're like, my life is futile and failing. And God enters into the story and says that it can be different and you're forever changed. And from that, from the gratitude that God literally came for you, changed your futile and failing existence into something more powerful, generosity flows out of that. I am telling you, I don't know how to create some type of framework for generosity that's not built on gratitude. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Because I think that like, if you make generosity like some kind of rote, rote ritual, then you'll kind of go through the motions and eventually it will fail. But I think that if you constantly are reminded of what you're grateful for, and at the top of that list of things is that God has given you a full existence, not a failing and futile existence, the generosity becomes kind of easy. The story of Zacchaeus is the reminder that you are literally ready to give everything away because you truly have received everything that you need. It's kind of funny. In the beginning of the year, there was an article in uh, in The Atlantic and um, I, The Atlantic is one of the least, my least favorite publications that I uh, uh, subscribe to. But I read it, so that says something. Um, and uh, New Year's Day, they basically posted a, uh, an article about New Year's resolutions. And what, what the, the case that the guy was making who wrote the article was, hey, we make all these resolutions and then we fail at all of them. And so like, we end up February 1st, we're just as fat and we spend just as much money and all that type of stuff. So what resolutions can you make that you can actually hold to? And it was funny because his whole thing revolved around gratitude. And he basically said, like, um, happiness is totally dependent on being thankful. And I was, it reminded me as I was going through, because you know, the Atlantic has a generally very secular worldview, and it's, it has like an atheistic kind of underpinning to the whole thing. But he was writing down things to be thankful for, um, and it reminded me of a G.K. Chesterton quote where he says, the worst moment for the atheist is when he's really thankful and he has no one to thank. <laughs> um, because it is funny, disc, like even people, who are, even people who don't believe this stuff, understand that happiness is totally dependent on our gratitude. 
And yet at the same time, if you're a believer, the amazing thing that you enter into is that not only can you be thankful, but that you have a person to thank. The entire thing's actually pinned on that. And so um, I love uh, the story of Zacchaeus because it basically just reminds us that um, this default posture uh, of a grateful heart is actually being generous. Um, but I, uh, I kind of preached something similar to this at Ardmore like a month ago, and I had like these two stories, and I, um, they were like two, con- it was like a compare and contrast type of thing. Um, and I wanted to do something different today, and so um, I actually was kind of like just searching the scriptures to find something else. And I was just, you know, a little prayerful, and I was like, God, what else about generosity? And it's funny because it actually, um, it led me to Luke 6, if you want to turn there. Um, my my uh, messy notes versus my actual highlights in my Bible are incredible. Um, not Luke 6, Luke 7. <laughs> Um, Luke 7.36, this is the headline in my Bible, says, A Sinful Woman Forgiven. And if I can condense this entire thing down to a sentence, here's what I would say about it. I actually would say um, that generosity is ultimately just an act of worship. Um, Here's the story of the sinful woman. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went out into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Um, I have, uh, yeah, I've just been like kind of meditating on this entire passage. And um, I I think that the, the beautiful thing that we basically see here Um, reset the whole story, right? So it's like Jesus comes to the house of a Pharisee. A woman shows up, and um, she's a woman about the city. Most theologians would say she's a prostitute. She walks in, and she basically just starts this process of anointing the feet of Jesus with this super expensive ointment. It's like some fragrance, and theologians say it was a burial fragrance. And so here she is, and she's doing this, and Um, The Pharisee basically says he must not be a prophet because he doesn't know who this woman is. He wouldn't even let her touch him. Um, But the interesting thing is Simon didn't know who the person was, and the the prostitute did, and that's why she was there. The woman totally knew exactly who Jesus was. In fact, the perfume that she brought was a burial perfume, and she was anointing him for his coming death. Um, 
I, w- I texted Pastor Shem a couple days ago because I was, um, I was like, he had some definition for worship, and I was trying to think of it, and I, and I couldn't. So I said, what is, what's your definition of worship? And it was something like, it's, worship is our response to God out of the truth of who he is. Worship is our response to God out of the truth of who, she, who he is. And I thought, man, for this woman, her act of worship was basically to respond to the truth of who God is. In fact, she might have been, she might have been the only person in the room who knew who God was in that entire house, right? And her act of worship was to take the only thing that she had and to pour it generously um, at the feet of Jesus. This is so interesting because, um, you know, as I started to kind of reflect on this, I said, God, what are the things that I can do? Like, obviously, Jesus himself as a person is not physically present. What are the things that I can do in my life that are reminiscent of that? How can I love much, you know, like this woman loved much? Um, And kind of like in my head, started directing myself to Matthew 25. And I don't know if you know Matthew 25, but it's basically, it's actually verses about judgment. But um, when, um, when, God, um, in this judgment day, basically says, these people are welcome. He says this, this is 25 verses 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, those are the ones that he's welcoming, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did, you see, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when, did we, and when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Almost all of the theology of generosity is unlocked in that verse. Your act of worship when Jesus is not physically present is to be able to do exactly what you would do to Jesus, to other people. That's the entire thing that this verse is saying. And so you look at this woman, and this this woman basically says, I have almost nothing to offer, but I know who you are, and my response to that is to give you the only thing that I have and then pour it out at your feet. This story is told um, also in Matthew 26, um, the same story of this woman. And the, in that story, the disciples start to have a little bit of a debate of whether she should have actually poured this out. It's very valuable. Should she have used it, or should we have sold that and given that money to the poor, right? And Jesus says, no, actually she did the exact right thing. This is what she should have done. Um, and he says this. He says, truly I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. And here we are in Chad's Ford, Delaware County, about 12,000 miles away from Israel, and we are talking about the good news, and literally the story of her is being proclaimed. And it's interesting, like his prophecy came true. We will always know of this woman because she almost wastefully takes her entire life savings and pours it just at Jesus' feet in an act of worship. I was at um, a, a conference, and Tim Tebow was there, and he was telling a story about when he won the Heisman Trophy. And he said, uh, when you win the Heisman, um, obviously it's a euphoric kind of thing because in a team sport, you basically are, you become the number one player in college football. And so um, it's like a huge accolade. And he said, when you win, uh, they always say the same thing. They announce you before you come up on stage to receive the trophy. They always say, from this day forward, you will forever be known as Heisman Trophy winner, blank, blank, Tim Tebow. 
And he says, when you hear those words, the rush in your body, everything that like you, the, the, the way that feels, it's like one of the, like it is, is one of the most euphoric feelings in life. But he said, it's interesting because less than a year later, he was on a speaking tour and he went to India. And he was speaking to a bunch of um, people and nonprofits and stuff like that in India. And somebody in the green room basically said, hey, come here, I have something to show you. And he followed the guy outside and they started going down a couple alleys and, it's, and eventually he's like, am I gonna get killed? Where are we going? And they walked into like a slum, basically, and this guy brought him into his house. And then in his house, like, which was like literally a lean-to shack, there was his family there, five or six kids, nobody had, you know, malnourished, not a lot to eat, whatever. And the dad looks and he goes, look, 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 look. And what he was trying to show him is that there was a kid there who was like emaciated, barely had eaten anything, but he was wearing a Tim Tebow Florida Gators jersey. And he said he had this moment where he was sitting there and it was like almost like it's like the whole world stopped spinning for a second and he just locked eyes with that kid. And he said, you know, like he, brought, he was brought back to that moment when he was winning that Heisman Award and he said, what will you forever be known as? And he was like, if my life I will forever be known as just the Heisman Trophy winner Tim Tebow, it's not worth living. And from that point on, he directed most of the vision of his life towards helping kids in situations like that. What will you forever be known as? This woman is forever known as the woman who anointed Jesus' feet. She was generous with what she had. Tim Tebow, forever known as something different than a Heisman Trophy winner. Um, for you, you know, will you forever be known as the couple who chose to adopt a special needs baby? Will you forever be known as the dad who was there for dinner, um, games? Will you be the entrepreneur who decided to spread the wealth around the team instead of keep it all for yourself? Will you forever be known as the woman who prayed for people that she barely knew? Uh, forever known as the family who welcomes strangers into their home? Forever known as the single mom who still takes time to take her coworker uh, to church? Will you forever be known as the person who forgave that offense that no one said that you needed to forgive? Will you forever be known as the person who decided to tell the truth even at their own expense, will you forever be known um, as the person who was vulnerable with their failures uh, and their weaknesses? Because vulnerability is a huge part of generosity. Um, I, was, uh, I kind of found something really new when I was looking at this story that I just thought was so interesting. And it was that I never really considered, a lot of times people talk about what does it mean um, to be, you know, they have this debate. What does that mean? She loved much, and so she was forgiven much. And um, I just, uh, I think I kind of skipped that this time. It didn't really stick out to me. Emily, if you want to come up, we're going to close. So, um, what did stick out to me is like for the first time, I actually thought about the uh, the fragrance that she had. And most, you know, theologians will tell you that it was like very, very expensive. Maybe a year's salary. That's how much this perfume cost. And she takes the entire year's salary and she just pours it out. And she anoints Jesus for his burial. And I thought about that and I said, man, you know what's really funny about this? Is um, it's all prostitution money. Like how interesting that like the entire thing is just um, everything, that, all the money that she's made from sleeping with guys. And uh, Generosity kind of gets pegged on these things where it's like, all right, so like, it's like, I gotta, you know, I know what I need to do. I need to write some checks and I know that I need to be better um, in my giving and all that type of stuff. And so I just want to challenge you on that today that I think that um, generosity um, is 
loving people a little better by giving yourselves, and a lot of times that's giving your brokenness. Um, I think that's one of the things that we learn from this woman, is that she really didn't have anything to offer, you know? And what she decided was, she basically brought to Jesus, here's exactly what I have. I've earned this, and, so, and I've put my savings into this, and so here's what I want to offer to you. And it was her brokenness. Um, it seems similar, and I hope this, that I can connect the dots for this, it seems similar to something like maybe like Alcoholics Anonymous, um, where a person who's been an alcoholic for 15 years still sits around in a circle and says, I'm so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. And they haven't touched a drop of alcohol in 15 years, and so how are they an alcoholic? But the reality is it's like them basically saying, this is my brokenness. This is basically, um, this, is, this is the brokenness that I have to offer is interesting because through that, that's how mentors enter, that's how the mentor-mentee relationship uh, works in the program, and they basically walk people through the same process they walk through. It's actually because of the brokenness that they have and because of their vulnerability to live in the brokenness that they're able to carry people to a place of health. And so I think one of the things that I'm challenged in is not just how we can be generous with our time or our money, um, not just understanding that, like, you know, there's a lot of resources that we have. We're in one of the wealthier zip codes in the world, and so um, there's tons of stuff that you can give. But more than just the resources that we have, I think there's actually our hearts given to another, and most of that comes from our awareness of our brokenness and our vulnerability to share that with other people. Um, there's a, uh, there's a Henry Nouwen quote that I've kind of been reflecting on, and it comes from his book, The Wounded Healer. He says this, Nobody escapes being wounded. We're all wounded people, whether physically, emotionally, mentally, or spiritual. The main question is not, how can we hide our wounds so we don't have to be embarrassed, but how can we put our woundedness into the service of others? When our wounds cease to be a source of shame and become a source of healing, we become wounded healers. And I think... There's these three principles. Generosity releases us from the tyranny of self, for sure. And who doesn't want to be released from the tyranny of your whims and your desires and all the selfishness in you? And then obviously, generosity is the default posture of a grateful heart. And if we can recognize what we have to be grateful for, it just makes total sense. It becomes normal and easy and routine to just be a giver. But ultimately, I think that generosity is, the act of wor is an act of worship. And I think that our act of worship, a lot of times, is, is not always bringing our talents and our resources and time. It's bringing our brokenness, the things that we think that are wrong with us, pouring that at Jesus' feet and saying, what will you make of this? Um, I had Emily come up here to sing a song when I was actually in like a really tough place in life, and I had made some bad decisions, and I sure had some brokenness. I went to International House of Prayer all the way in Kansas City, and I literally sat in the prayer room for like a week. And this was one of the songs that um, they played over and over and over again. And it was so interesting. It hit me like just at the right time because um, I think obviously there's something about religion that there's always going to be this um, works-driven mindset, this separator that I have to get myself together before I come to God. And um, I love this because the lyrics of this song is called Fragrant Offering. It says, it's about this woman. It says, I bring to you a fragrant offering. I pour out my love and I wash your feet. I offer up to you this brokenness. What you can see shall be my confidence. May it be a pleasing fragrance that I bring to you, my Lord. 
I'm so in need of your presence and I bow before you now and I pour out my vial of worship over you. Um, I said in the beginning that I just would, you know, I would just love if you walked away from this with a vision of the fullness of life lived with generosity. And so I pray that, you know, as the Holy Spirit just kind of works on you and some of this settles in your mind, um, that you would really come to understand more fully how much God actually has for you, the richness and the bigness of this entire thing. But I don't want you to ever think that it has to do with only the resources that you have, that I actually think the things that you, that you aren't proud of and the things that you feel like you don't have to give may actually be the, be the things that you need to offer up and that those things poured out actually become something that will be your confidence. So um, let's listen to this song and, um, and then we'll close.